была давно минувших дней Предание старины глубокой. Welcome to Snakes and Funerals. I am your host, Evan Morgan, and uh, as always, I have Eli Berger here to co-host this thing with me. Eli, how's it going? Pretty well. Uh, And uh, today we are going back in time with some old auteurs, uh, Alexander Petushko, Alexander Petushko, Seijun Suzuki, and Eric Romer. Uh, who used their final films uh, to kind of go back and recreate uh, a sort of like mythic fairy tale past. So we'll be talking about these last films uh, from these three filmmakers. So those are uh, Ruslan and Ludmilla, uh, Princess Raccoon, and the romance of Estray and Celadon. Uh, I think the, the grouping here is maybe a little bit looser than we... Uh, sometimes go for it's hard to imagine filmmakers more uh, dissimilar than Seijin Suzuki and Eric Romer. Uh, but I think in their way, each of these films uh, finds these this like veteran filmmaker kind of recasting uh, like key ideas in and motifs in an almost uh, almost like necessarily pure childlike way. Given that these films do kind of operate uh, like fairy tales. Um, you know, some even like are explicitly based on fairy tale, fairy tale material. Uh, now, I I'm not particularly familiar with Petushko, uh, though I'm quite familiar with Suzuki and Romer. So I I really only know Petushko by reputation. Uh, he's often labeled the Soviet Walt Disney. Uh, I don't know how applicable that really is, but anyways, that's what he gets labeled as. And I don't know how much Ruslan and Ludmilla diverges from his earlier work uh, or is informed by his earlier work in the way that I think I understand that with Suzuki and Romer. But uh, I believe it was the biggest sort of budget and canvas that he had to work with during his career. Uh, and I think even without knowing his earlier films, you kind of sense this is a filmmaker throwing a bunch of ideas up at the screen, knowing that he'd probably not have an opportunity uh, like this again. Uh, so that's all I have for an intro. So since we kind of ended there with a little Ruslan and Ludmilla, should we just jump right into that? Or Eli, do you have any opening remarks? Um, I, I think you covered that very well. Uh, I, I just want to add that coincidentally, um, not only are they all fairy tales and all the final films of these three directors, but they are all, uh, fairy tale romances. Um, and the way that they deal with this is to, well, especially the first two, um, we'll get into how, uh, Astrid and Celadon deals with the idea of, of fairy tale love, but the way that these first two operate is to be very night na- purposely naive about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and to stick to conventions for the sake of having this very simple structure on which to go wild in other areas. 
Uh, yeah, it's a, I think that's a good way to put it. Like, especially yeah, the first two, you just see these totally baroque uh, sets and things like that, which we'll get into. Um, that are it's sort of in the simplicity of the narrative enables them to do that. I think you're right. All right, so our first film is Ruslan and Ludmilla, and I, you covered the intro very well, I think. And I'm in a similar boat as you, that I'm not familiar with this director beyond this context. I just happen to be uh, looking for a third film to uh, group with the other two, and I happened to find this one, and I thought it would fit well. And uh, I certainly think that it's my least favorite of the three, but I don't want to undersell this film because I, I think it is a lovely film. Uh, it is an adaptation of uh, a fairy tale in verse by Alexander Pushkin, and I, I haven't read it. Uh, I'm going to be straight up with that. Uh, but I'm going to assume that this is more or less a faithful adaptation. Uh, what I really like about this film, uh, speaking generally, is how it brings the spectacle of Melies, and I, I would also relate it to maybe the 1940 version of The Thief of Baghdad, if, if you know that film, mm -hmm. um, in terms of that the, it uses that uh, naive spectacle to create films that, while lacking in... I, I think what we might consider depth, uh, on a very surface level, they're quite delightful. Uh, and I know that it sounds like I'm damning with faint praise, <laughs> but um, to do that certainly isn't easy. And, and I think um, on that level, it's the, this film is a success at what it tries to do. And I, I don't think it's trying for anything more than that because it is trying to be a, a fairy tale for children, mass audience, and some of the work here is really remarkable, even for today. It actually kind of reminded me uh, of Bava in a couple scenes. Oh, totally. I mean, the, the lighting choices, especially in the sequences sort of towards the beginning when Ruslan is uh, out in the forest and he meets the kind of like old... Um, was like an old like sorcerer or magician or something like that. And the kind of uh, like cave that he lives in is very Baba like it's like gr alternating green and red lights. It almost looks in the blue. a little bit. Yeah. Like the stuff in um, Hercules in the haunted world uh, before he goes to hell. But when he's in the sort of like crepuscular uh, nightscape uh, of the, the real world in that film. Yeah. I just realized this is a Russian peplum. That's what we should call but, it. That, that actually kind of is what it is. Um, going back to before the, the film gets into its, uh, magic business, uh, actually the, uh, court scenes at the beginning almost reminded me of Eisenstein. Not, I think, as great, but, uh, I, since I did not know what this film was actually about, I thought it was going to be, uh, more or less focusing on, uh, like, how do we get her away from him at this court because uh, mm -hmm. they, they were gossiping like the uh, boyers in Ivan the Terrible. And then the witch comes and throws that out the window. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think 
the connection to Eisenstein is is correct on some level, but I will say I sort of was struggling to get into the film during those opening sequences because, like you, I didn't really have an idea of what the story was or where it was going to go. And though the court stuff recalls Eisenstein in some ways, it's certainly not as like angular and not as laser focused. Oh, it's not focused. nearly as interesting. Yeah, on the sort of like power plays and things like that. And so it did seem a little flat. And then when the witch comes and like snatches Ludmilla, like all of a sudden the movie is just like struck by this bolt of lightning, uh, almost literally. Uh, And I was like, okay, now this movie has my attention because that's when it really cranks up the, the stylistic choices that are the thing that make it interesting. Because I agree that I don't think there's a whole lot going on with this movie beyond... Um, the sort of bobble-like uh, pleasure of it, but uh, it's certainly a, a beautiful movie to look at once it gets going. Uh, another thing that actually recalled, some, recalled something like uh, Hercules in the Haunted World for me would be when she is navigating the platforms uh, in the <laughs> lair. Oh, yeah. that, that actually reminded me a lot of that, uh, as well as it reminded me of Super Mario Brothers, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> Um, probably not an avowed influence on this film. Probably this was not. made before it, but a not unreasonable connection. Uh, the other thing I thought about too, actually with this movie was, um, Lang's Siegfried. And I think if there is sort of something else operating in this movie beyond, um, the construction of the thing, uh, it does have a little bit of the flavor of this kind of like national epic in the way that uh, at least the first part of Denis Belungen has. And I'm sure that's very much uh, contained in the source material from Pushkin. It seems very much conceived as a kind of national epic. Um, and I think, though, what makes this film a a less rich experience than something like Denis Belungen is it's kind of the film that... Uh, Lang's critics, I think, accused him of making with Siegfried, which I don't think is exactly correct, but that it it is very simple-minded and nationalistic, uh, and is, I think you said, naive. I mean, that's like the exact right word to describe this movie. It's kind of like Siegfried if there's no cleansing hate fire uh, from Krimhild's Revenge, which is like essential to understanding, uh, I think, what Denis Lincoln is. Instead, it stays very safely in this... um, this innocent kind of space, which is appropriate given that it was a film, uh, you know, made for children. Although the, uh, the sorcerer might be a bit scary for them. Uh, I'm not sure how, and I was not able to discern this information from my research, uh, how Shishko filmed the giant head scene, uh, which again, it is, very there there's nothing to it and i also i don't i'm sorry if i'm uh, if any uh, devout pushkin fans are are, are reading this but uh, <laughs> the the story is, is nothing however uh it, it is uh very fun to watch uh and i do like the uh shade of blue in that scene mm-hmm. and, and uh there there is a real sense of scale in yes. that scene as well, which is very impressive. Well, I th- I've got to assume it's it's a combination of some kind of, uh, like, structure they built on a set for some of the, like, reverse shots when you see Ruslan, like, looking at the head when he's on the horse, but then the head itself must just be, like, a mat 
painting of some kind. Um, and it's like beautiful matte animated. Paintings. Yeah. I, well, that's what I was going to say. Like the movie is filled with matte paintings and, uh, Pushko does have a background as an animator is my understanding. And so it makes sense that the, the matte paintings would be in some ways the highlight of the film and would be deployed, uh, so flamboyantly. Um, the other one that comes to mind aside for me from the, uh, from the head is when she first enters the, the giants. Yeah. Uh, the giants, the giant head. Oh no, no. I'm, what were you going to say? I, oh, I was, was going to say like else. the, when she enters the, what's the, like the little sorcerer's name, uh, it does not matter. <laughs> yeah, whatever. The like evil sorcerer that like snatches her away. Alberic. Yes, yeah, there you go. Uh, lives in this like it's not underground. That was a, that was a joke. No. No. Well, whatever. Uh, he lives in this like underground cave complex, I guess. And she, when she first enters, she's in this like like oh, inside yes. a yes. snowflake. Uh, and there's like this combination of the matte painting, which is really beautiful, and these kind of almost like chintzy like Christmas lights that are like adorning the the sort of like set that they built around the, the matte painting. Um, and I, the matte painting there uh, did particularly strike I love me. the matte of the coral, which is either right before or right after that. Okay. Well, that's what I was talking about. Is that coral? Or, I thought it was like the inside of a snowflake. At first I thought it was coral, but then when it kind of like pulls back to another shot, I thought she was like inside. It was like snow. Um, It really looks like coral to Yeah, me. it does. Um, But then later on it looks more like crystals or yeah yeah uh no i know what you mean uh that when when she floats in that scene it, it is uh, i i think uh, a very simple uh effect i keep using the word simple i'm sorry uh but it, it was actually rather beautiful and uh she actually has this great close-up reaction when she sees the sorcerer's eyes um and, and she has this veil in front of her. That, that's really beautiful. But what I was referring to uh, earlier when I misunderstood you was... And I did not understand the mythological you know, significance uh, of these giants that were in the like caves that were changed. Oh, along. yeah. Not giants necessarily, but like larger than a human, but not as large as that giant head, certainly. Uh, when they are all painted in silver, they're they're all strapped to the wall and, and ceiling, and, and uh, there's this um, you know, clever effect that makes her look very small compared to them. Uh, but but that uh, image of her giving them water, uh, I think, was something that uh, is actually worthy of like Kodavathi. Yeah, I mean, I, I hadn't really thought about Peplum while watching this, but that now, like, that's all I can think about. And, like, that whole yeah. sequence is very much like the sequence in uh, Hercules Conquers Atlantis when he goes into the cave and there's that, like, cave monster. Uh, or am I, am I thinking of Hercules? I maybe think of the other one. But, uh, yeah, there's definitely a, uh, a sort of uh, connection uh, there. Uh the other connection yeah. that I I think is maybe not as favorable for the film uh, for me was like I think there's it's a little hard if in the in the context of the film to take some of the the 
the I don't know how to describe it the like real world things that are happening like seriously uh, because they seem a little bit like Monty Python <laughs> to me like there's that uh, yes I know exactly where... what you're talking about <laughs> that scene any where, like, scene that Kong... doesn't focus on explicit magic in yes. this movie is not good well, it's like unintentional or, parody yeah. like there's that scene where the because like there's three uh, three other people aside from Ruslan who are like have set off on a quest to go rescue uh, Ludmilla and, they and all one of suck. them yeah they're all terrible and one of them is like a, a con of, of some sort of um, like uh, middle or uh, central Asian descent I think and the con goes to this like castle that's like filled with all these beautiful women who just like immediately are like fondling him and it's not even really clear what he's doing there but I mean that is just like pure like what's the like anthrax castle or whatever in Monty Python exactly and then there's that sequence at the end which had me like howling actually where he's like Ruslan is like riding to the rescue and he's like <laughs> decapitated <The head. laughs> he's like <It> makes- decapitating <laughs> people like left and right and all it is is just like they set up some stuffed body <laughs> and just like lamely <laughs> you're gonna have to take like, over the, the description of this should, for them okay but like the movie should have ended uh about i don't know five minutes after the flowers started springing up after he rescued her there's a good half hour after that and it's very shoddy, uh, as you said. It's, it's almost ridiculous. Well, it is ridiculous, but well, not he... in the way that there is, I, I think, uh, I, I'm reluctant to make fun of it in a way that makes me sound like I'm just going to you know, riff on anything that has uh, this, this very uh, childlike structure to it. Uh, or, or has uh, these models um, which in miniatures, which are really impressive. And I'm not doing that. Uh, I'm going to assume that what I'm laughing at, I would have laughed at in the original uh, Pushkin. And I don't want to sound so negative, because what does work on this film uh, is really lovely. But well, totally. it, I it is just... hard to uh, recommend in comparison to the other two films that we're going to talk about today uh because it does seem stayed compared to them but i still rather enjoy this movie well and you, you just can't separate the the things that are great about it from the things that are maybe a little bit you said shoddy about it because they like emanate from the same sort of naive approach and you couldn't i think easily like scrub the film uh, of one without risking the other. Um, and like the thing that makes the like decapitation so funny to me is it, it's like not, I think deri- I'm not like laughing at it derisively. It's just that it is as naive a conception of what like to decapitate someone means as like anything else that's happening with the fantasy. So like the violence is just like, so again, simple. Like he just is like riding on a horse and, in the space of like five minutes decapitates like 20 people just by like touching their neck and their head like flies flies off. Yeah. So I I would put it this way that Ruslan going to rescue the princess 
is not an interesting setup, but what Petrushko does with it uh, is interesting um, in the sense that it's interesting to watch. But when you take it to you know, being a national epic and to doing scenes that are supposedly going to be uh, like an Eisenstein battle scene or something like that, and then you don't do that to the effect that you think it should be done, I can see why you would laugh at that. There's just there's a lot of decapitation in the last five minutes. Um, the other uh, sequence I just wanted to point out, because uh, I quite uh, liked it, uh, is um, after Ruslan goes, when he's first going to fetch Ludmilla and he meets the kind of like old sorcerer that lives in a cave that we had mentioned previously, uh, it goes into this little story about his life, which actually might be my favorite thing in the movie. Um, it just suddenly like takes this detour to describe how he... Uh, was trying to court a woman himself as a young man and she had like spurned his advances and he then spent uh, the rest of his life uh, learning sorcery basically so that he could weave a spell over her to get her to fall in love with him. And uh, the movie has this montage sequence where you see him get older and older over the course of just a couple minutes as he's like learning magic. And he finally, at the end of that sequence is like an aged bearded, like white bearded old man. And uh, he encounters the woman again and she's all of a sudden herself like old and craggly and a sorceress. And uh, he's just like sort of puzzled that he's, himself aged and this the sense of like this time that passes during that sequence uh and his like sudden realization that he has frittered away his life and is now old um was like suddenly like this very emotional moment for me in the film which otherwise i think isn't really tapping in into anything quite like that um and really it's love the reds in that scene oh yeah well that's what, like I said, what we said it looks very baba baba like yes uh, so I think that's about it for yeah, Ruslan I don't, and Ludmilla. I don't know there's much more I can mine from uh, Ruslan and Ludmilla, but uh, certainly a fun experience. It is. All right, uh, let's take a little break, and then uh, we can come back to discuss uh, Princess Raccoon. <laughs> The next film we're talking about is Seijin Suzuki's Princess Raccoon, and I will be referring to it as Princess Raccoon because that is how uh, it, it is commonly given as the English title, and, and that's how I first learned it. So it, it's hard for me to call it anything else instinctively, but I should point out that the correct title would be Princess Tanuki, uh, because Tanuki, they're a Japanese raccoon dog with a lot of uh, mythology around them anyway. If, if you've seen Pompoko, uh, then you already know what I'm talking about in addition to this movie. Um, and raccoon dogs are not actually raccoons, but that's a fairly minor point, I suppose. Anyway, I love this movie. It's, it's actually one of the best ones 
I've seen in a, in several months. Uh, I think for Suzuki to have done this at any point, but let alone as his last film at, uh, I believe, over 80 years of age is, is nothing short of remarkable. Uh, what What's so impressive here is how Suzuki has always, uh, or at least to the point that he started to be able to express himself creatively uh, without restrictions, um, has always reveled in uh, showing how artificial cinema is and loving that. And the way that he constructs and shoots the sets in this film are beyond anything that I've seen that's attempted that, to be honest. Um, even something like Percival, which it's a very different film, um, doesn't, I, I think, use sets this well uh, that very clearly bring attention to how uh, we are shooting on a soundstage. Uh, yeah, well, and, I'm sorry. And, like, I mean, Percival is a, a useful connection in some ways because, like Percival, it is the sets are deeply informed by the uh, aesthetic tradition that this story is sort of like emerging from and like the period in time in which this story takes place, like Japanese historical Japanese art forms, like make up a huge proportion of what the sets actually are. Like there are like classical Japanese screens in the background or, um, sort of like Yukioe type paintings that, you know, become like the seed if they're, uh, sort of swimming through. Uh, and so the, like, first of all, which is I think very much informed by, um, sort of like medieval, uh, forms of, of, um, of visual art, uh, you see Suzuki here running sort of the full gamut of his, uh, his sort of expertise on Japanese aesthetics. And it's the, uh, the sort of like deep rooted sense of, uh, Suzuki's understanding of what those aesthetics are and how they function. And then yet his totally like anarchic, uh, playful ability to sort of bend them to his own will and do something different with them. Uh, that I think makes the film so fun and feel like it could do just about anything at any given moment. Uh, before we get into, uh, the film more specifically, I'd like to read uh, a quote by uh, the film's composer, um, what's her, uh, let's, Michiru, uh, excuse me, Michiru uh, Oshima, uh, who is, I think, maybe best known for uh, video game scores, actually. But hmm. uh, anyway, her, her music is, is really great in this film. And I want to talk more later on about uh, this film's use of music, which is superlative. Uh, but this is a great quote. Uh, I, I enjoyed working with Suzuki a lot. He made very special movies, and he was a very special director. One time I asked him what a scene was going to look like, and he just said, a dock in the fall time. Then when I saw the movie, 
The scene didn't even have a dock. So what I'm trying to say is that he had a very special and unique way of doing things and thinking of things. <laughs> yeah, that's Seijin Suzuki in a nutshell, I think. Well, I mean, it's incredible, too, in a way, because you have to imagine if he's working like that with uh, with something that is as freeform as this, like, he's he's just sort of making it up as he goes, and the fact that it not only does it cohere, but that it uh, like actually is a strangely emotional experience. Like that's one thing I think I want to get into is the way in which this film actually is, is kind of tender despite being uh, very anarchic and having like rap sequences and things like that. Like it it finds this sort of emotional through. Oh, you mean the greatest rapper of all time? Virgin, Virgin. (laughs) Virgin Virgin Yeah. Uh, a, that is a name. Yeah, it is a name. Uh, uh, yeah, but just the way that uh, Suzuki yeah. <laughs> is able to mine kind of like emotion from from this, and yet I think it sounds like work in a way that is very intuitive. Um, that, that's not an easy thing to do, I think. Uh, and many other films that are similarly uh, kind of gonzo fail to create that kind of emotional reality to match the uh, sort of like Baroque visual style uh, and Suzuki here and in, you know, I think the, the Taisho films and some other films really finds this like emotional core around which to wrap his, um, his visual ideas. But, but the Baroque visuals, oh my God. How about when, uh, it's this painting of, uh, uh, mountains and, and, uh, the, uh either a sea or a river below and, and there's a waterfall flowing to it. It's, it's a very, uh, it's, it's a Japanese, uh, painting and it's like an inkbrush painting. What? Right. Is that you talking about where it's like an inkbrush painting, kind yes. of? Like black and white? Yeah. That's the one. I, I was blanking on the word inkbrush. Uh, when Princess Raccoon first appears, she appears by materializing out of the waterfall in that painting. And, and that's only the first example of how uh, this movie uses these... And I'm not sure... I was not able to identify any of the paintings in this movie with anything specific. So I'm not sure if uh, Suzuki picked real paintings and adapted them into sets or just emulated a style. Uh, However, my God. (laughs) Yes. I'm I'm genuinely stupefied at, at how beautiful it is. I'm just going back at some screenshots I took. Wow. Yeah, I mean, and just, like, the... It's not only that it's just, like, beautiful. Like, the conception of the space is so um, multidimensional in that you have uh, these, like, very flat theatrical kind of backgrounds, but then all of a sudden, like, they will move into the, like, 2D background. Uh, And so this thing that felt very, like, stagey all of a sudden seems to take on this kind of, like, different and unexpected depth like i'm thinking particularly of that shot towards the beginning um which is not long after the the scene that you highlighted where uh princess raccoon emerges into the film uh when they're in a boat and they're like so they're sort of like rowing in the boat in parallel to this uh you know green screened painting behind them that's also in the same kind of ink brush style and then in the next shot all of a sudden they're like in the painting like there's some sort of like CGI that has like imposed them into the painting and in the 2d painting, they're now like following the waves, like in 
like 2D. It's, I don't know exactly how to describe it, but they're they like no, become know, a part of the background and, painting, and yeah. the the plane all of a sudden becomes like it is very different than the the plane that was operating in the just the prior shot, uh, and the space has totally changed. Exactly, it, it will um, in in one scene play on the the strangeness of seeing depth, and then the strangeness of a complete seeming a seemingly complete absence of depth. I'm talking about depth depth of field. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I may have said scene by mistake. I meant from one cut to another. Right. It's incredible. Um, I love the golden uh, like animal trap that seemingly comes out as if this is now a film you watch with 3D glasses and bites at the viewer as Princess Raccoon starts to uh, sing and dance. This is right before um, the shot in the boat that we were talking about. Uh, and then after, um, you know, she was bitten uh, by this trap um, because she is a tanuki, uh, her foot is shown in close up with these uh, white flower petals. And that's just for a second, but it, it's it's such a beautiful little detail that is so insane. Another thing like that is when there is a fucking bat hanging upside down from a uh, cherry blossom tree. This is not something that is either relevant to the plot or, or even a significant uh, visual detail to the film, but every moment is just suffused with uh, unbridled um, creativity and uh, a sense of uh, movies can do anything, so I'm going to do everything that I can and uh, not restrain myself with any limits. And the remarkable thing is, it works. And then version hag wraps. Well, okay, so so you did bring up the other uh, or one other sequence uh, a minute ago where uh, Princess Raccoon is performing a song, and I think it's worth mentioning because we haven't really, although we've alluded to it with that song, and then of course Virgin Haig's uh, rap, uh, is that the movie is an operetta, um, and so again, there's like yet another sort of like uh, non cinematic, non traditionally cinematic form that's like. It, informing the way that the film is constructed. And so you get these long uh, sequences uh, of sort of singing and performing within the context of the film. Uh, and and, and it's, there's no music, or at least none that I can recall that I, I would deem, you know, quote-unquote traditionally Japanese. It, uh, it uh, derives from, uh, you know, very Western sources. Right, uh, a Western including. operetta tradition, yeah. But also it has, like, rock operas of stuff. Right, right. There's a song that you could expect to be in, um, you know, like a 70s crazy rock opera or something that you might see in um, a very more kid-friendly Broadway musical with, with like, all the trumpets. Uh, And that, and also the references to Christianity, which I don't fucking get at all. Oh, I want to talk about that because I have, I do have an idea about what it's doing with that. I want to hear your, but yeah, that contrasted with, uh, the traditions of Japanese theater and Japanese mythology, 
uh, I, I think really show how eclectic Suzuki was and how much uh, love he had for art in general and mm-hmm. uh, incorporating anything that he thought would make for an interesting film, even if it's a combination that seemingly shouldn't make any sense. <laughs> Not even on a... I mean, even talking about make sense narratively, but just makes sense on a fundamental level. Right, it's such a melange of styles. Like, they shouldn't be able to click together, uh, and yet they do. Um, So I I don't know that I have a fully formed thought about what it's doing with Christianity per se, but I think there is something interesting, and it actually gets to what we're talking about in terms of the sort of, like, aesthetic contradictions at the film's core. Uh, There's something here about, like, the East versus the West, and you have each uh, of those sort of uh, like big ideas of the East and the West like embodied in the two different courts in the film uh, because the the narrative of the film uh, is actually basically uh, Snow White uh, yeah, that's I been was, gender flipped that. Um, so that uh, the uh, the like queen is now a king who is like old but somehow like, it's like an old man, but wants to be the fairest of them all. Uh, and so is going to kill his, uh, is it his nephew or his, his son, right? Son. Going to kill his yeah. son. Because Can I just say something is... about the, yes. um, he, uh, and I'm blanking on his name. Uh, the old man who is the, uh, you know, wants to be fairest of them all. The actor, uh, is, uh, Mikijiro Hira, uh, and, how could I forget the character's name? They say it so many times. Azuchi Momoyama. <laughs> yeah. uh, but he, uh, he was a very, um, apparently a very respected Shakespearean actor. Ah, uh, okay. In addition to working in um, some notable 60s and 70s films, which I haven't seen yet. But uh, I, I do think that that is interesting uh, as, as a casting choice. You know, someone who was very, was very well known and very well respected for... Um, doing Shakespeare in theater in Japanese. Well, there is a, there is an almost like little edge of, I, I don't want to say this is like intentional per se, but a sort of like edge of like parody to his character of like parodying specifically like the Kurosawa, like Shakespeare kind of characters. Like he kind of looks a little bit like uh, Tatsuya Nakadai does and Ron, like with his like saggy face makeup and like the dark circle under his eyes that are painted on. Uh, and so that the fact that he's a Shakespearean actor, I think is an interesting uh, valence on that. But anyways, what I was going to say with going back to the sort of like mm-hmm. the narrative and the way it's playing with the East and West, like, so because it's based on Snow White, like he sends his son uh, out to basically be killed so he can be fairest of them all. And his court that he uh, runs is like uh, sort of, there's basically a bunch of uh, Portuguese Jesuit priests and uh, other, other Portuguese people that are just like hanging out in his court. And his court is the place where the film has the most, uh, like Western aesthetics, like well, it's, there's this painting that I'm not yeah. sure what it was, but it was uh, this very um, baroque era. Yes, uh, painting. Right, it's like a giant like scrim in the set. There's like crosses everywhere. Like you talking about the Virgin Mary? <laughs> oh, was there a giant Virgin Mary too? I probably forgot that. No, but but, but they keep uh, like they chant the Virgin Mary's name, or at least Virgin. Oh, Mary's okay. Name. 
but yeah, so I mean, his court is like suffused with all these like Western imagery and, and actual, you know, Westerners. There are these people speaking Portuguese hanging out in his court. Uh, and then when the sun goes out into the world and then uh, sort of begins his romance with uh, Princess Raccoon, uh, her court is that she comes from is very much the opposite. It is that's where you see the most classical Japanese uh, sort of like aesthetics. Like that's, I think, like the gold. Uh, like gold um, screen painting that I think you had tweeted out, Eli, like comes from the sequences in their court. And of course, uh, Zhang Ziyi herself is Chinese. Um, and so it's like there's sort of this positing of these two different courts that have these like different influences operating on them, right? You've got one court yeah, where like speak, Western imperialists. Chinese at a couple and points of the movie. And it, it through most of the movie, actually. Yeah. I think she only really speaks Japanese when she's singing and the movie like goes out of its way to basically, it kind of makes like a joke about the fact that they like hired Zhang Ji to play this role and like she doesn't speak Japanese because it's like, well, she's like a, a foreign Tanuki who just like doesn't speak Japanese. Um, and also they're playing like trumpets and trombones, but they look like not traditional Japanese instruments, but like what a traditional Japanese mythical prankster might play they they do look authentic in that way and then it's it's yes it is traditional japanese aesthetic but there's uh an ebullience there that i think is absent from what we might think of as um centuries past court life in in japan <laughs> sure uh, i mean I, my guess is court life in japan did not look like uh what <laughs> no, the exactly. tanuki court looks that, like here but um uh, you know suzuki uh is taking this aesthetic and just having a lot of fun with it and right. doing whatever he wants yeah yeah i mean it's not like it's not a a you know deeply serious deployment of these these sort of like forms per se but i do it is interesting that he poses this contrast between these two different courts that have different foreign influences at their center, one from the East and China uh, and one from the West and these like imperialist Portuguese people uh, in the court. And that the court that is the Western influenced one is the one that is like diseased and sickly and like covered, like the colors are all these like bruise like colors, like purple and blue <laughs> and, this, and black. Uh very large structure with a lot of screaming faces in it <laughs> made of silver. I'm not sure yeah, what that kind was. of Dante like or something. Yeah. Um, uh, like this frame that looks like it's going to house the, um, painting that we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I guess I, I just, it's, it's opposing these two things. And ultimately the, the resolution of the film is basically a, uh, embrace of, Japanese Buddhism against the Christian court. Uh, and so there's, there's definitely all this stuff operating in the, in the film East versus West. And I'm not sure that the film is coming to like any kind of final statement on that. Uh, but it at least explains for me why there's a bunch of Christian imagery uh, present in the film. It's counterposed to something else. Well, yeah. Uh, so when, um, <clears throat> Azuchi Momoyama uh, has his uh, death scene. That looks like a, that could be a uh, sort of more 
modernist, minimalist sort of take on um, something like King Lear or, or Macbeth, the way that that is done. It, it, it almost looks like modernist Western theater. And that that is why I brought up his Shakespeare connection as well, because uh, the demolishing of that court uh, seems to take influence from that. But I, I don't think that it is really critical. I mean, it's just using these things as... I think this is cool. I want to put this in my movie. Uh, I, I think that is more what it comes to, to be honest. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I, like I said, I don't know have, that I have a final idea of what the film's sort of position on this is. Like, it's it's putting them against each other. I think that you're right primarily for aesthetic reasons. Um, and, of course, like, this is the same filmmaker who made the Taisho films, which are... Uh, films that are deeply uh, informed by uh, and in some ways films that embrace the Western influence that was present during that period in Japan. Um, and yet I think there's still a little bit of, there's a kind of hesitance in the Taisho films or an ambivalence, maybe I should say about the presence of Western influences in Japan and uh, there's a kind of the ghostly quality to those films, and I think that the the ghostliness in some ways is perhaps readable as this kind of uh, like Japanese life that is maybe fading away uh, with the the modernizations that are present uh, in that period. And it does seem to me, in some ways, that this film, in the final as the final gesture of Suzuki's career, is to like make a claim uh, for himself as like a profoundly Japanese artist. And if there's a, if there's a way in which the, the opposition between East and West like arrives at a final kind of point in the film, I think it's just that it's for Suzuki to say, despite all of his Western influences, which are very present in his films and important to him, uh, he's claiming himself as a, as a distinctly Japanese filmmaker here. I, I do have to disagree that I, I think that there's not, as much to it as that, and I don't think that it's meant to be a statement in that way. I think that if there is a statement uh, about how Suzuki views himself, it's he views himself as a Tanuki, as a trickster. Um, well, that's true too. But I mean, is the Tanuki is the but the Tanuki is such a key, like Japanese folkloric image. Like I just don't know that I find that they're that separable. But but I think you're right. I mean, it is, but, I mean, I, I feel like that's saying that, um, like, I, I, I don't want to accuse, I feel like it would be if we were talking about uh, our next film, Astrid and Celadon, um, like, that if you make a film that takes place in, in some sort of mythological past of your own country, that you're proclaiming the, um like supremacy of that I, I don't oh no i don't think it's like a a supremacist statement by any means i, I didn't mean like that kind of thing but i i mean i don't think that it's even any um playing any favoritism as much as uh he's obviously going to be interested in his own culture and, and mythology and decided to make that for this i i think that there is a bit of that with um the more Western influence scenes, but I, I, I don't think that that is 
um, as big of a deal as I, I think you're getting at. But we might be getting kind of off track here. Um, I really love when um, <laughs> Princess Raccoon is writing the cloud, like, um, and it's like the cloud that, well, I would know it from Dragon Ball, but I mean, it really comes from Journey to the West. And I think that that was a joke of the fact that she's a Chinese actress coming in this role. And that's uh, that's a funny visual gag, I think. But it's also really pretty because it has this purple background to it. I love the talking frog. That's that's what I'm about here. The talking frog? Is that the, are you talking about the golden frog? Yes. That they, the, is the, the, I don't know, the object that saves her? I don't know. It's not really clear to me how it is, like, uh, saves her from being stabbed by... Because uh, it's it's a fairy tale, it's magic. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to make yeah, sense. Sure. Uh, I will say the scene her because he goes to the mountain to save her. That's why. The scene where she does get stabbed by um, what's his name again? Azuchimo Mayama. Thank you. Uh, that has maybe my favorite uh, visual like cue in the movie because it is so unexpected. Uh, which is that after he stabs her, like half of the frame is like taken over by this like glitchy red like artifact, digital yeah. effect, like a digital artifact. Yeah, um, and all of a sudden it's like this weird intrusion of. I mean, the movie is shot digitally very clearly, um, but this like very digital aesthetic all of a sudden just for this one scene like pervades the film. And of course, it is the scene where she is almost killed. Uh, or is she killed and then brought back to life? I guess it doesn't really matter, but whatever. It's a scene where violence is is enacted against Princess Raccoon, and um, that there's such a moment of of rupture, of aesthetic rupture at that um, point in the story uh, was very striking to me. I love uh, the effect of when he is... So, by the way, to... Uh, you know, with this mountain, there's... Uh, he imagines that there's this ladder, and that's really funny, uh, because he has to climb this mountain to get this frog, and, and anyway... Uh, he is bombarded with these bats, uh, these balls, which I swear is the ball from uh, Yumeji, right? Oh, I hadn't thought about that, but I'm, yes, it is. Uh, and it's, uh, it's coming full circle. I really like the uh, sort of Ballad of Nariyama, sort of orange when he gets to the top of the mountain. It, it really reminded me of that. The... Belly drums are fun. <laughs> the belly drum. I forgot about the belly drums. Uh, the other sequence I was going to highlight that really was quite incredible to me was uh, when Virgin Hag uh, dies, or I guess she's yeah, dead. Or she's I like would defeated come back in... as Virgin Hag. What's that? That she says, I would always come back as Virgin <laughs> Hag. Uh-huh. Yeah, and it, again, it's like, it's weirdly moving. Like, she's this kind of, like, evil character in the film, and there's this, like, is it like a duel that she gets killed in? It's like a uh, no. court. It's, it's this, and that is, is I think, really um, uh, a strong example of how uh, this film references uh, theater. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a very exaggerate, exaggerated uh, miming of... Um, her becoming uh, temp- 
for temporarily deafened, um, and and so she shoots her powers, misses, and uh, eventually she's outsmarted and foisted by her own petard uh, there. But yeah, I like the fireworks at the end of that. Well, yeah, because then she's like lifted into the air, like, and there's like fireworks in the background, and then she's like inside of a firework that like are all these like shafts of like plastic with like lighting inside them that she's like singing in. I don't think the effect of it is very, um, is just very extreme, uh, looking. But then, like I said, she gets, she's like sings this song about dying and how even in, in death, she would like still come back, like you said, and she'd still choose to be virgin hag. Like it shouldn't be moving. And yet somehow I was like kind of touched by her death sequence. Uh, I don't know. So there's a point in the movie where uh, the year 1582 mm-hmm. comes up. It, it, it's shown, um, and I wasn't entirely sure what it meant. Uh, my guess was, because this was with the death scene um, of our evil patriarch, um, I wondered if, if it had to do with... Um, uh, Oda Nobunaga's death, but maybe it has something to do with um, something else. I'm not well, sure. I think it has to. It has to do with when the Portuguese arrived in Japan. Was because, that 1882? Yeah, yeah. That's when uh, Portuguese Nagasaki was established. So I think it's it's contextualizing what's happening uh, in that historical moment. So that the presence okay. of all those Portuguese people right, in yeah. uh, in the uh, court uh, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, and if you also compare this to uh, his film made four years prior, Pistol Offer, which is another amazing film, um, you, know, you get the sense that um, either of those films could have been his last film, and I'm glad that you got to make this one after that, uh, because this one, I think, goes even uh, further with... Um, it's complete deconstruction of general senses of space from scene to scene. Um, you know, at, at the start of the segment, I, I mentioned that quote from the film composer, uh, and I, beyond how, uh, maybe unpredictable, uh, he could be, it, I think it also says that these scenes themselves um, seem to develop um, unpredictably that I'm not sure if he even knew um, what he wanted all the time and that sounds like it shouldn't work but it does because of the surfusing of so many different styles uh, under a master hand like Suzuki's uh, you know it, it, it basically breaks every rule uh, without failing to uh, deliver a beautiful experience. Mm-hmm. Well, and that, like, that uh, desire to, like, break all the rules and yet still somehow produce something that, like, coheres is very much the Suzuki impulse all the way back to his uh, Nikatsu days. Uh, but in some ways, like, it's at its most... Uh, 
opulent sort of expression here because he is working in digital. And I think the ability that he has to just kind of make the film up on the fly and to just add visual details or apparently remove a dock from a scene because he decided he didn't want the dock to be there. Like that's really only possible to this extent because he's working with digital and so much of the imagery is, is clearly crafted, uh, you know, uh, in a post-production, uh, in post-production sort of effects. Uh, and I think there's a way in which that makes this a key, uh, sort of early digital film. Uh, and I think you see that with a number of these sort of older filmmakers, uh, that when they're, when they take on digital in the kind of like mid to early, uh, 2000s, uh, that's actually some of the most interesting, I think, use of the format in that period. And Suzuki seems Suzuki's uh, sort of like instincts of how to craft a film are very much suited uh, to what digital as a technology offers. Uh, with the uh, end sequence where they're all either wearing a Tanuki mask or saying, I'm not wearing a Tanuki mask, um, it ends with uh, our. Uh, main characters in this close-up that looks like it's been either burnt or cut out of something. Sort of like a silhouette. Yeah. Well, not quite. I I mean, like, it is a... I mean, it is something that you might even see in, uh, like, the beginning of, uh, uh, like, a Fuyard serial, like, with the close-ups of of Mm. the actors, but at the end of the movie. But the way that it does it is by you can actually see the texture of what is either burnt or cut out. Um, and I really like that detail. I don't, I don't have anything um, more to say about that. I, that was just a, a stray thought I wanted to say as we were arriving up. Well, and then, I mean, I do, uh, the other thing the ending made me think of um, uh, is basically after that scene where they're like reunited in death, basically uh, again, it's a fairy tale. So it's a little unclear, like what's, perhaps like narratively happening here or, or maybe not narratively happening, but uh, what's like really happening, but they're sort of reunited in some fantastical plane. Uh, And then the film pulls back out to this like theater space, basically. uh, And uh, a sort of minor character in the film gives a sort of final um, address directly to the camera as it like pulls back onto this uh, sort of proscenium. Uh, which very much reminded me of uh, another film we've talked about on this podcast, Sandra which is Sancho Uprising, exactly. Yeah. And um, I think when we talked about that film, we talked about uh, the ways in which that actually was very, or had a lot of similarities to Suki, particularly the Taisho films. Uh, and so because I had that film in mind, like there was a way in which that the gesture of the final shot almost seemed like a, a kind of passing of uh, the gauntlet to like the next generation. I don't think that's necessarily present in the image per se, but because, uh, another filmmaker, uh, you know, I think takes something like that up so clearly in Sanchu uprising, um, I think just adds to the sense that Suzuki is, uh, making this one sort of like last explosion of his style and then, uh, like stepping off the stage for, uh, someone else to come center stage. So that's a lovely sentiment. Shall we, uh, and there then, and then uh, come back, take a break, and then come back for Romance of Astray and Celadon? Yes. Okay. 
Faites qu'il vive Je vis. Welcome back. Uh, and our last film today, uh, of course, is uh, the great Eric Romer's uh, The Romance of Astray and Celadon. Uh, this was a film uh, that uh, is obviously Romer's last film, uh, a film made in the uh, early 2010s. Uh, and uh, I think... Well, I'm sorry, I have to butt in and say it was made in 2007. 2007? Oh, God. Well, 2007. Uh, yeah. Anyways, I, I think though the the thing that or the place I wanted to start with with this film uh, was actually exactly where the film starts with its uh, sort of opening title card. Uh, I was hoping that's where you would start, because yeah. because I think it's the the thing that is really fascinating about this movie and important to understanding how it works, in my opinion, is the way that it has all of these like historical layers operating at once. And so the film is very much uh, addressed to a 21st century audience in the opening title card. It basically says that they couldn't film the story where Romer wanted to film it, where, which would have been like the historically appropriate location because in the 21st century uh, that uh, location is overrun with urban blight. Um, and you've got this, 20th, very 20th century figure in Eric Romer addressing his audience in the 21st century uh, in that opening title card. And then the opening title card basically ends by him saying, we're in this film based on uh, this 17th century uh, verse piece, uh, which itself is attempting to recreate the 5th century. Uh, he is going to attempt to create the 5th century from the perspective of the 17th century. And so I think that opening text really like primes you to be seeing the film like from the 21st century through the eyes of a very, I think, specifically 20th century artist, uh, then back through the 17th century to the 5th century. And so your, your experience of the, the time and place of the film is like highly mediated uh, in that way. And uh, I think it's just a, a totally fascinating way to conceive of, of how to make this film. And it shows Romer's attention to the source text, because I think what you see throughout the film are these, again, in the way that Suzuki is like very attuned to the aesthetics of, 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 uh, of Japan, like these, these Western aesthetics are very tied to the moment of the 17th century. And yet the story is playing out in, in the fifth century. Absolutely, uh, and I, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but uh, it's also about the strange mix of Romer's conception of religion and love and the set more 17th century and... and the uh, fifth century, as you said, and, and how those all uh, interplay. And just like um, our first film on the docket today, <clears throat> I have not read the source material, as I'm sure you uh, have not either. Uh, which is interesting is reading about it, um, part of it uh, apparently is 
related to um, Henry the Fourth of France in ways that uh, I, I really don't think you see anything like that in this film. I mean, who's to say, right? But uh, there's nothing. You mean you didn't watch this film and just immediately think, no, well, of I course, didn't. this is about Henry the Fourth? Yeah, what a great satire! No, uh, but even there, there's no political analog besides perhaps an anti-modernization. Um, but even that is, I, I think, not the main part of it. Uh, what makes this film work so well for me is um, how Romer uses cinema to connect uh, us to uh, two different time periods of art and does it in a way without uh, invalidating either um, periods that he's going back to, nor does it uh, stop being cinema at any point. Uh, one example of that that I'd like to highlight is uh, when the nymphs um, look in at the, I think it's a necklace he had or something like that. That yeah, it's has like the locket, like the necklace a, of the locket. Yeah, that has uh, what is very clearly a cut-out photograph, <laughs> but in, in like an oval shape. It's obviously meant to be, uh, uh, in the context of a of the film, an artist's depiction, uh, but it, it, it looks like something you might see in uh, an old silent uh you know, with, uh, you know, his, he's got his girl's photo in, in his locket. Uh, but it looks very classical in a way, too. Yeah, it's got like a Botticelli or like Raphael-like look. Exactly. Uh, like the way that she's framed uh, looks like, a, yeah, like a, a woman in a painting like that. Uh, when he watches off on the shore, um, the way that uh, Romer sets up that shot reminds me of... Something I almost want to say like a, a like a Daniel Defoe thing, but I can't quite figure out what it's supposed to be. Uh, but that that's ultimately a, a fairly minor detail. Um, Celadon is very attractive. Uh, that true. And that's also something I wanted to just get out of the way. Noted. I really love how Romer uses uh, these famous. Paint. Well, I wouldn't even say that they're famous paintings, actually, especially one that was very hard for me to identify. But when he, um, sorry, when Celadon first wakes up, he sees uh, these two paintings by, um, I believe the artist is pronounced Simon Vouet, or I'm not sure how that's pronounced, uh, of, of classical art that is something that you might imagine that people in the 5th century could have, or that's the kind of thing that they would want to have. But it, it is Renaissance, or, or slightly later, period of art. Uh, and then there's this French Baroque painting of a classical scene, The Judgment of Paris, which is used uh, in context as an artist's depiction of the characters in the film recreating the judgment of Paris. Uh, 
And I think that uh, that last one is sort of a simulacrum of what Rome is doing in the first place. It is uh, repurposing um, an old story to make for an adaptation of an even older story. Mm-hmm. It's really wonderful. To but and and but and that story is like the essential Romer story though too. So in a way it's like, I mean, Romer's all always interested in these kind of classical forms, but in a way it's like very much a, a modern it's story. It's every marriage in, in right. the same way. Yeah, it totally is. Um, and I think one of the things that's so fascinating about this movie is that it is at the very end of Romer's career, him basically like taking uh, the the kinds of narratives, the kinds of people who populate his films, like Celadon here is very much a classic Romerian male figure uh, who's like living in his head and like almost like squandering his life for these kind of like abstract principles um, and recontextualizing it in a very different historical period, almost as if to say, uh, like the truth of my films is a kind of like eternal truth and you know, everyone who I think is really focused on, you know, my films as like time capsules because his, his other films uh, very much are in a way uh, are kind of like missing some core uh, of the film and that the core of those films reaches basically as far back as, as human experience does. Um, and I just seems it's a Romer is such a, um, uh, a casual filmmaker in a way. And so, um, not exactly self-effacing, but uh, he's a, a somewhat humble filmmaker. And yet, the the thing that I t- the final statement of Romance of Stray and Celadon, I think, is basically him like recoding the entirety of like human romantic history with his particular uh, mythos, which is uh, quite a bold uh, gesture to end your career on. It really is. Um, and it, another bold gesture is having two different levels of uh, basically pre-Christian religion. Uh, One is what we uh, see more populated throughout the film, you know, the the Roman, thus Greek mythology and religion. Uh, But then there's this uh, Celtic religion that is just Catholicism. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's totally fascinating. And that is just, I mean, it's outrageous, and I actually find it a bit amusing to talk about like that, although that scene is really beautiful uh, with the statues. Uh, The druid is just a a Romarian priest. (laughs) That's a great way to put it. Well, and the, uh, that whole sequence when they're, the sequence you're talking about when they're, the statue, when they're wandering around the statues, uh, Sarah Dranko, who plays the, the like Druid priest. Yeah. is basically like giving him a lecture on, uh, like the Holy Trinity and like the, the tripart nature of yeah. God, um, which is, yeah, supremely Catholic, uh, and something that would obviously be very important to Romer who himself was, was, uh, you know, Catholic. And that was very important to, to him and to his films in a way. Uh, and again, uh, it, it does kind of mirror what he's doing with the sort of like romantic ethos here. He like reads back uh, into, a, a, as you said, a pre, uh, I guess not a pre-Christian history, but a, cause I guess Christianity would have been 
extant in the fifth century, but a non-Christian history, uh, and then sort of puts his his ideas that are very key uh, to him uh, and his life uh, into that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Obviously, uh, Christianity would have been it was around, uh, but but there's no uh, there's no real reference to it that that I remember at least. Um, no, I mean it's very much taking place in a non-Christian world. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's an allegory, and uh, in that sense, that fits into what Romer is doing elsewhere. Um, and what would make Romer a less interesting filmmaker is if this came across as dogmatic. But in a way, I think you're free to. Um, ignore what the priest says and just take it as kindly advice and not a lecture because of the way that he shoots this uh, is um, yes it is um, you know the the kindly priest giving um, advice but it comes more across as take it if you will because uh, he has this uh, complex blocking with these statues uh, that are really quite beautiful uh, and don't just focus on um, this concept of the Trinity being given through a bully pulpit of any sort. Uh, it's really lovely, actually, um, this scene. And, and uh, all of what could be something that might be uh, for another filmmaker, a lesser filmmaker, be uh, dogmatic or um, otherwise non-artistic. It's like uh, airless. Like it's not exactly. It's not airless, and part of that, I think, as you're saying, has to do with how uh, like suffused the film is with uh, the kind of like light and like texture of this like pastoral world that it takes place in. Um, it is, I think, one of Romer's just most beautiful movies, uh, sort of on a the level of like light and color. It's so filled with all these greens, and it takes place almost entirely outside. There are a few sequences uh, in uh, the like Druids' castle, and then where the the like nymphs live. But it's it's almost exclusively an outdoor um, film, and the kind of like sylvan. Uh, vibe of the thing it makes it feel very uh, loose and and sun dappled and so uh, you can have these like romarian discussions and they feel very open and free uh you know especially when contrasted to something like say my night at mods which is uh, arguably his most catholic film but feels much more um insular obviously if it's taking place in winter and in one room more or less uh, and so there is a kind of a sense of freedom in this film um in the visuals and in the ideas and in the fluidity of, of personality, um, as, as Celadon sort of takes on, uh, he basically dresses as a woman, uh, to win Astray back. Uh, and that fluidity is, I think, pretty crucial to the film. I, I think the greatest scene in the film for me is when he's walking in the forest and he's singing and it, it dissolves into uh, Astri smiling close up 
before dissolving again to show them in the past, um, you know, holding hands, embracing. That that is so beautiful uh, and uh, very tender. As as his last statement, uh, one thing I want to touch on is uh, how it's not uh, about necessarily uh, saying that Celadon's single-mindedness single, uh, is always sensible. I think it actually sort of pokes fun at how silly he is totally. for sleeping in this stick hut. But it also uh, does admire him for um, yeah, being so single-minded. It is this strange contradiction that sounds perhaps a little clumsy when I talk about it, but when you see it, uh, it's just lovely. Well, that's like the classic Romarian paradox in a way. Like that's just, like I said, it's so key to so many of the male figures in his films, which is that I think Romer admires them for their very like, uh, like almost neoclassical sense of like abstraction and remove from the world and their sort of obsession with these, uh, like platonic ideas of, of beauty and love. And yet at the same time, he's always cognizant of the fact that that kind of way of thinking, uh, inevitably holds you off from the world to a certain extent. And though he admires it, uh, I think in many of his films, he recognizes the need to, at the final moment, make a decisive gesture to brush that kind of remove aside and embrace, uh, the world. And, I think you find in the the final gesture of this film, like just the most ecstatic uh, expression of that in some ways uh, in Romer's filmography. Uh, you know, I think the only other one that really, I think quite uh, achieves that is the ending of the green ray. Um, it has a similar kind of ecstatic uh, return to the world quality. Um, but here just the, the way that uh, the two actors are just like, fondling all over each other just in the most like clumsy but touching uh way possible uh and just the the like almost sexual ecstasy of it is um is very moving romer gets a lot out of shooting his actors uh under uh tree branches or sitting on stumps or or in an archway uh but I i'm talking about uh shooting them, at least in this particular shot, um, by themselves in a way that uh, has a very painterly quality to it, um, but still feels like you could watch this film without dialogue and uh, it would still have a great sense of narrative to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, in fact, we, I think before we recorded, Eli was like, you were joking that, like, oh, this is the first Romer film we're going to talk about, having forgot that we talked about. I wasn't uh, joking. I well, did forget true. that we were joking we about, after, about Yeah, about the rather dry uh, Triple Agent. Uh, and I think uh, you absolutely could not say that about Triple Agent. If you cut out the soundtrack in that film, you would have no idea go what's going on. And even with the soundtrack included, I sometimes have no idea what's going on in that film. Um, 
But as I think we sort of talked about, we talked about that film, uh, like Romer, despite the the frequent talkiness of his films, is obviously a very sophisticated visual filmmaker. And if anything, the weakness of Triple Agent is that it's maybe the one film in his uh, filmography where you couldn't do what you are describing and just sort of grasp the narrative from the images. Um, and it is nice that after making Triple Agent that he he was able to sort of return to that uh, or just display that ability one last time here um, before uh, his career ended. There's, uh, I'd almost call it a, a, a gag uh, early on when uh, the nymphs are fondling him while he's asleep and they're talking about how hot he is. That is actually what they say. Well, they say handsome. <laughs> but... uh, and one of them <clears throat> goes to reach under the sheet and uh, the other smacks her hand away and then says to, you know, watch after him, but gives her a dirty look, like, don't try anything, because he's mine. And uh, that was, uh, I think I missed that the first time, actually. It's a, it's a horny movie. It's a very horny yeah. movie, for sure. I think is probably the rumor that goes most of that. One thing I didn't like, if I, if I have to point out... Uh, what I might consider a flaw is the, I don't know what I, what to call him. Or oh, I know exactly what you're going to say. <laughs> then, then say it. The like character who's like the bard, like the like yeah. lusty bard who is sort of like yes. sings these songs a couple times throughout and is sort of the, the counter, uh, he's sort of counterposed to the ideas of love that are expressed elsewhere in the film. And he's like, no, there, there is no love. There's just, like raw lust and that's that's the only thing that uh anyone should be interested in yeah i don't mind a a joke the the problem is that that's a not i i feel like that needs to be given more consideration not that i i think that i would expect romer to come to that conclusion but he's not a character in the way that these that even the other minor characters are. He he's a bad joke, and it it sort of just slows down the movie for me whenever he was on screen. Uh, I agree, and I I think I I think it maybe just has to do with the guy's performance more than anything because, like, I think if he just underplayed it a little bit more, it wouldn't register as so. Uh, like he just feels like a jester like a lame jester in the middle of this film, which is otherwise like not really in that kind of mode. Uh, and exactly. E- even when, so the, the head nymph who wants him to stay in the castle, she speaks of love in, in a way that I, I know that Romer doesn't agree with uh, the, that the idea that uh, Celadon has a sense of duty to love the person that, saved him and and to stay here uh that is obviously not an idea that is uh uh treated with any sense of consideration but she is treated with a sense of consideration and i think you're right it could come down to the performance but that is the one part of this movie that i don't like which is hey it's just only one part but it does sort of stick out as Let's get on with it. Well, and it does make the film a little bit lopsided in a way because I think the film is 
operating a little bit or is constructed a little bit to have these kind of like dialectic uh, interactions about what love is. Um, but the the answer is like so – or the right answer is so clearly weighted on one side that, uh, as you said, it does kind of slow the film down because it's like, well, who who's going to take this guy seriously? Uh, we kind of exactly. – we kind of know where the film stands on this. Uh, and anyways, it's going to illustrate it uh, better elsewhere uh, with the central romance. So. And it makes uh, Celadon's part of the story, you know, I think weighs that more as more interesting to watch than Astria's, which is uh, not, you know, irreparably bad or anything, but uh, it's an unintended imbalance. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. Um, But overall, this is exactly what you would have hoped for as, a final gesture from Romer, I think. Yeah. Viva Celadon. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you get the sense in some ways that Romer might have been more happy if, if he had been <laughs> born a couple of centuries before he <laughs> uh-huh. was. But that isn't to say that he is not cinematic and that always bugs me when I, I hear that 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 Romer is a, a, like a boring filmmaker or something because I don't see that at all. Um, and I also don't think that many people, even maybe some of his fans, um, think of him as such an interesting visual filmmaker sometimes because when I hear certain films call Romerian films, whether I like or dislike, they don't resemble Romer films at all, other than being about romance and maybe having a lot of talk, you know, talking. Um, I, I do think that I, he's obviously well appreciated in cinephile communities. He's not obscure. Like some of the films and filmmakers that we've talked about in the past, but I, I still think that he's misunderstood in some ways. And, and in a lot of ways, I don't think I understand him. I don't want to sound arrogant. Uh, but he's yeah, a lot more than ECI. It, it's hard to articulate what, because it is so casual and it is intendedly so offhanded, it is, it is hard to articulate what is, um, what makes his films... Uh, different than a lot of things that are superficially similar. There is a uh, attention to how he composes things and how he blocks actors and things like that that is very subtle. But when you see a film that's trying to do something similar and it's not present, uh, you feel it, even if you can't, I think, quite point out exactly how Romer achieves it. Magic in this film is, well, certainly it's nothing like the other two films that we saw today, but it's there, like kind of in the background. And it, I would call this film a fairy tale, undoubtedly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do still think it fits for the uh, other two in that conception. But at the same time, it is seemingly so uh, naturalistic and bare of any artifice except for the couple 
moments, like the song that I was talking about where uh, her face dissolves in, that there is um, nothing that comes across as uh, Romer trying to uh, use anything that would suggest uh, a fantasy setting. Um, and the fantasy, I think, comes more from just his reimagining of uh, a past that is both pagan and Christian at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a past that's so pastoral, too. I mean, I think that uh, part of the the thing that gives this film an air of fantasy, uh, despite the fact that it doesn't deploy any obvious uh sort of mechanisms to indicate that uh, is because it takes place so much uh, out of doors and it has a kind of, um, like I said, like a sylvan quality to it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that's, that's very much connected to uh, a kind of, uh, a kind of through line of uh, pastoralism and even environmentalism that runs in, in Romer's films. And again, just to connect it back to that opening title card, like, the opening title card is is reminding you as a 21st century viewer how unusual it is to see people live their lives out basically in such a uh, sort of uh, plain air kind of way. And Well, uh, he's a shepherd because he wants to be, not because he has to be. Right. But, I mean, it just... As a, as a viewer who's even acquainted with the other Romer films that... Uh, deal with pastoralism like something like the tree the mayor and the media tech where it's always mm-hmm. uh, a little bit under threat like it's just so pure here and the purity uh is so alien that that's what makes it seem uh, fantastical to me in some way yeah a, a purity that seems like time just won't move can't move forward mm-hmm. it, 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 this is going to be everlasting uh even if people aren't because uh it's not like there's some sort of pie into immortality here, uh, but you know you don't imagine this as coming to an end because it never happened. Well, I mean, it, it did happen in the sense that at some point there were shepherds in, in a pastoral France, but uh, this uh, very idealized version, uh, like the the kind that we might see in. Um, oh God, I'm not going to say it right because I'm terrible at French pronunciation, but, uh, you know what, Trey, you know, I'm just going to, uh, what's the English title? (laughs) uh, I'm going to send, uh, the title to you and you're going to read it. Oh, this is new. Exactly. So (laughs) bear with me one sec. I know this is very exciting for everybody. <laughs> On this visual medium. All right, I sent it to you. Très riche heures. Yeah, that's it. Uh, it reminds me if if you know if you know that it it reminds me um, a lot of the uh, especially the uh, spring and summer um, miniatures and that it really reminds me of. Uh, that uh, sort of 
mythic, very uh, medieval in a sense that Romer would like. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it touches on something uh, like eternal, uh, as you're suggesting, which I think is a very uh, beautiful thing uh, for Romer to do as he's uh, sort of making his last film, knowing that he probably himself was uh, not long for this world. So, I just got flushed. I just got flustered from trying to <laughs> speak French and then realizing that was terrible. So sorry if. I lost my point there at the end. <laughs> All right. Well, shall we uh, wrap this up? Yes. Uh, this was a, a, a fun episode to record, I think. Uh, I am not sure if picking three films, which are in many ways very dissimilar, uh, was the best choice. However, uh, I had a lot of fun talking about it, so you got to see princess people. raccoon so yeah god I love worth it so for much. that all right well let's sign off then uh thanks eli and uh we'll be back again soon yep